What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. The American Association of School Librarians' standards for the 21st century learner outlines that the ability to demonstrate confidence and self-direction by making independent choices in the selection of resources and information is one of the dispositions modern learners need to master. The ability to make independent choices about their information and reading needs is one that, as a professional librarian, I love to see children exhibit. It's great when a child can come into a library and be able to pick out of all of the books the ones they know that will fit their needs and interests. It's also great to see children being able to articulate clearly why a book may or may not fit them. These kinds of behaviors are the kinds I look for in readers and the kinds I want to develop in children I encounter. For me, this is one of the best indicators that I see that pretends a lifelong interest in reading. It's also clear that being able to choose our own reading is also connected to reading enjoyment and motivation. For example, when students were asked which book they enjoyed most, 80% of them said the one that they enjoyed most was the one that they had selected themselves. Another study indicates that students who choose what they read tend to be more motivated and show greater language and literacy development. So as I work with children, I work to honor their choice. It really saddens me that most of the reading children do in schools, especially in the upper grades, is devoid of any kind of choice. As a professor, I advocate for building as much choice into children's classroom reading as possible. And the good news is that in a home environment, reading can be all choice. So as concerned adults, let's do everything we can to help our children make independent reading choices. Let the kids wander and pick anything on your next trip to the library. Don't judge what they pick, especially if it's that one book we don't like. Instead, maybe ask them why they picked it. In this process, it's great for them to have guidance by helping them see how the books they like might connect to others because of the same kinds of characters or similar themes. As you guide, get your local librarian in your corner because they're sure to know what books fit best together and can help direct your child's reading. So let's focus on the 21st century dispositions. And next time your child needs a book to read, take this tip from Rachel's World and do what you can to build a little self-directed choice. Any story about a bad monarch should probably end in one of two ways. The author either needs to kill him off or banish him. Well, maybe there's a third way. You could try to reform him. In her latest book, The Emperor's Ostrich, author Julie Berry opts for reform. She talks to Rachel about writing The Emperor's Ostrich, or rather, how she let the story write itself. Berry is the author of the award-winning novel The Passion of Dulce, All the Truth It's In Me, and multiple other well-known titles. She holds a bachelor's degree from Rensselaer in communication and an MFA from Vermont College. Here's Rachel and Julie Berry. We're in studio with Julie Berry today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. 
Julie, I am excited to introduce your latest book to our listening audience today. It's called The Emperor's Ostrich. So why don't we start out by you telling us a little bit about what it's about? Sure. Well, it is a madcap adventure story with a light fantasy twist. It's set in a made-up empire called Chameleon, and it features several storylines that weave together in a a very whimsical way. First, there is a a young emperor in this um, kingdom or empire who is... um, let's say, a very immature and somewhat spoiled and selfish young man who needs to be taught a lesson. And there is also a young dairymaid named Begonia, whose cow goes missing. And there are ancestor spirits who decide to interfere in the doings of the the um, emperor's development, shall we say, who banish him with no other traveling companion but an ostrich. And so as Begonia goes out in search of her lost cow, Alfalfa, she finds Alfalfa hopelessly in love with the emperor's ostrich. And so that starts in motion a a series of crazy events that uh, carry the story on its feathery back. I love that description. I think that's wonderful because it does carry it on. It's a very, very feathery back. (laughs) But one of the things I love about this story is there are so many different elements and you go back and forth between points of view. And there's some other characters that you even didn't mention that bring in added complexity with their stories. So how did you keep it all straight when you were writing it? I mean, it, it, it really is a fairly complex story, right? I mean, it's, it may not sound that way, but when you start reading it, there's lots of things going on and lots of adventures happening and lots of people having a say. And I, I just don't know how you kept it all straight. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that's interesting about how I wrote this book is that I ended up writing almost all of it in about a four-week period. And so I couldn't forget much because it was pretty fresh in my mind. Sometimes when you write a novel over the course of a year or so, when you go back and reread it, you'll find things that you'd planted in the beginning that you forgot about completely, like little little trails that ran cold. But because this book came together so quickly, it was written in the same sort of um, frenetic way in which the story itself plays out. So I think there's something about the process that fed the result. Um, that said, though, how do I keep it straight? When I write stories, especially stories like this for young people, I just kind of let my mind burble along and whatever comes in, I roll with it. So when the, uh, well, let's say, for example, Polka, the um, carnival proprietor, who is a very colorful character, when he showed up in the scene, I wasn't planning him. I hadn't expected him, but we just ran with it. And and uh, everything in the story is like that. Just, you know, everything but the kitchen sink makes an appearance. And I just decided to go with it. And then and then it's my challenge to make all the threads come together at the end. And and it's always amazing to me how the story solves its own problems, that the way always presents itself. And I never know how it's going to. So that's that's as much of the fun as anything else. I always say I read my stories into existence. And so I keep on reading them forward, just as curious as the reader is to find out how on earth is this going to end. That statement of this is kind of a problem solving exercise. I I really appreciate that because I don't really think that some people who aren't writers don't realize how much creating a story is about problem solving. So what was maybe one of the problems that you had to solve with this story that was challenging for you? Hmm. Well, the idea began with this thought of a supernatural element 
banishing the emperor. And it took me a while to figure out exactly what and who that supernatural element would be and what would be their motivation and what would be their logic. Were they good? Were they bad? Could they be a little of both? Um, the there's always there's got to be an underlying spine of logic even if you're dealing with a completely made up universe there still has to be a sort of emotional consistency to things people that do what they do it has to make sense that they would do that whether it's a diabolical action or a virtuous action or something a little murky and in between it's got to make sense so finding that logic and making sure that all of the pieces fit that logic is is probably the the hardest part of all, but it's also, you know, fun. It's, I mean, just like any other puzzle we enjoy solving, it's rewarding to be able to do. So was there any particular origin other than just this sense of, you know, we needed an inciting event for the emperor? Was there any other kind of origin that this story came from, something that sparked sparked the, the uniqueness of this story? Definitely. I'm so excited about how this story came to be, and there are a couple of different threads to it. Um, well, first of all, I do a lot of writing workshops in schools. So I will go into a fourth or fifth or sixth grade group at an elementary or, or middle school, and I'll give them a presentation about my books and about being an author. And then we'll go break out into workshop groups. And in that experience, I begin with a brainstorming exercise where we fill a whiteboard with oodles of words. And then I challenge the kids to pick three at random. And I really push them to pick them randomly and not try to sort of um, orchestrate the perfect combination. And from those three words, we then develop a situation, pick a character and develop it and on we go. And so it was in 2012, when I was still somewhat new at doing these events, that I visited a school called the David Mindus Elementary School in Ashland, Massachusetts. And in one of those workshops there, my three words were emperor, ostrich, and ghoul. And I was trying to show the kids that you can be very playful as you do this. And, and so out of thin air, I chose a dairymaid named Begonia as the main character for this crazy premise. And the idea just stuck with me. And I was so tickled by it that I went home and just wrote a chapter, wrote, you know, just a beginning. And I thought, well, that's fun. And I set it aside because I had other deadlines and obligations. And then years later, I came back to it. And as I said, in about four weeks, I wrote the rest of the story. So what what thrills me about that is that I get the chance to show the young people that I do these workshops with that this process we engage in in about a 45-minute class period isn't just a party trick. It really is a method by which ideas can emerge that can become stories. There's another piece, though, that's very, very special to me, which is that um, when I first was forming the dream of becoming an author, I discovered uh, a book by Lloyd Alexander called The Iron Ring. Now, I had somehow missed Lloyd Alexander as a kid growing up. I don't know how, but I, I wasn't aware of him as a young reader. So I discovered him as uh, a grown-up. And I was so charmed by it that I wrote him a letter telling him how much I loved it. And he wrote back to me. He wrote me this very sweet, encouraging letter saying, you know, if you want to be an author someday, I'm sure you can. And I was so blown away that I wrote him another letter, sent him a picture of my kids, and he wrote back again. And as it happens, just yesterday, I came across these letters in an old box. And I was so touched by that because I, I went on to read, you know, everything he'd written. And this book is dedicated to his memory, because he wrote this same kind of madcap, whimsical, 
wild adventure story with a sort of motley crew of unlikely uh, characters meeting up on a quest on the road. And uh, I just I wanted to give the world my little love letter to to his memory and to his influence. So all these, you know, threads kind of wove together into this story. As a Lord Alexander fan myself, <laughs> I, I can certainly see that beauty of that love letter. And, and there are certain things in there that I think, oh, that that is kind of a nod to Alexander. And and the, some of the things you include, like some of the cats and things, I think, oh, there, there's an Alexander nod. So so am I reading that correctly? Are there, there are specific things that you pulled in just to give an extra little nod to Absolutely. Alexander? Absolutely. And I love animals and stories. I always want there to be at least one important animal in every story. And usually there are more. Um, there's just so much, especially when you're writing for young people, there's just so much that they add. But uh, while I didn't want to, you know, mimic him, I saw certainly wanted to sort of swim in the same waters that he did. And several of my books have had that. You know, I would say The Scandalous Sisterhood of Prick Willow Place is a bit of a nod to Charles Dickens. You know, it's just a bit of a um, a flavor that I wanted to evoke. And I really enjoy doing that. No story truly exists in a vacuum, right? They're always referential to the the body of, of you know, traditional stories and, and contemporary stories that, that it exists with. Yeah, and Lloyd Alexander and and Tolkien also call this like the cauldron of story, and and there's all of this stuff bubbling in this cauldron. And as an author, you dive in and you pull out what comes out, and you know the the pieces that you get. You know, you may get a piece of potato, you may get a piece of meat, you may get a carrot, but the other author may get a different set of pieces. And how you put those together are the are what makes your unique contribution. So I I, I can really see that vision in your works. As we close up today, Julie, why don't you tell the audience one thing that you would like them to remember about the Emperor's Ostrich? Oh, I just hope they remember that it's a rollicking good time. And I hope that's what it is. I hope it's just a, I hope it makes readers laugh and gasp and, you know, keep turning the pages past bedtime. Well, it certainly did with me. So <laughs> I can I can put the two thumbs up for, for the Emperor's Ostrich. So I really encourage all our listeners out there to run out and get it or some of your other books as well and, and enjoy a rollick and good time. Thank you. Thank you. Children's book author Julie Berry talking about her newest book, The Emperor's Ostrich. Next, Rachel chats with Jessica Verzello and Olivia Hales about a graphic novel by Marissa Meyer entitled Wires and Nerve. All three work together in the BYU Education and Juvenile Literature Library. I'm in studio today with Jess and Olivia for a book chat. So welcome, ladies. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Okay, we're going to discuss a graphic novel today called Wires and Nerve by Marissa Meyer. So Jess, dive in. Tell us what is it about? Well, Wires and Nerve is um, part of the Lunar Chronicle series. You can call it book five. It's an extension into this graphic novel form, and it follows Eco, who is Cinder's robot sidekick, and she has taken on the mission to hunt down the rest of the wolf packs, the mutated packs that have refused to leave Earth. And so her mission is to find them and to report them back. And meanwhile, you know, you kind of see the whole gang come back together and Cinder is trying to establish a democracy and come to Earth. And and you really see the progression of the story in a new and beautiful way. I agree with you. I think because 
the initial series has finished essentially, mm-hmm. right? And this is now the graphic novel that is continuing the series. So I think it's really interesting that she's continuing the series, kind of doing this book five, but it's really a new series, but it's in a new format, which which just makes it really intriguing. And I think adding in the artwork is just uh, an amazing way to extend the series, but do something new and fresh at the same time. So Olivia, you are an artist. This is this is your wheelhouse. So <laughs> talk to us about the art. I mean, what do you think about the art in this book? Oh yeah, from the uh, first time that I picked it up and started reading it, I was really enjoying how tidy the illustrations were. I've read a lot of graphic novels that are on a tight deadline when they come out, and so the artist you can see like rough penciling and all of that jazz. But this was really, really neat. And the line weight is beautiful. The variation is great. So talk to us a little bit more about that. You say line weight. What do you mean by that? So the uh, variation in thickness of the lines in the illustrations, weighting certain edges for emphasis and contrast. It's a good practice for illustrators to vary line weight. And so it makes it more, more, I don't know, it has more movement in it, and it's just overall, it's more engaging to the viewer. I, th- I think you're right. I noticed the line weight thing too, particularly in the action sequences. Mm-hmm. Right? It seems like they use the line weight to emphasize, you know, the kind of kapow <laughs> bits of the of the action uh, sequences there. It also is just two colors, right? It's like blue and gray, I guess. Yeah, yeah it's monochromatic. Blue, grayscale. Yeah, yeah blue, grayscale. So what do you think of that, Olivia? What, do you think that that use of just minimalist color adds something to it? Well, I do know that it cuts down on work for the artist, but I found it really refreshing. Uh, and I think that overall for me, it really cut down on reading fatigue because you're already trying to pick up a story from expressions, from words, from actions, from settings. And I think that that just, it brings it together in a nice, calm, manageable package. That That is a great way to state it because I think sometimes, particularly some graphic novels you write, can get a little visually overwhelming mm-hmm. because of all of the color and the action and the things that they're trying to pack into a small space. Okay, Jess, you're a huge fan of this series. And, <laughs> I am, you know, you, and author. <laughs> right, yeah, huge fan. So what do you think from a fan perspective? Is this a good way to continue the story? Or were you disappointed in some way by this continuation? I was not disappointed at all. I know that some fans, you know, once they have these characters in their mind, and this is the way that they see them, and so they're a little bit off-put by someone saying, well, this is the way I see it, and this must be the way you see it, which I don't think is true. So I think if you can get rid of that little piece of criticism and really enjoy following the new perspective, which is Eco's perspective, and and what she's dealing with, with her human and robotic programming, you know, how she feels versus how people perceive her, I think it, it does the story justice because it, it doesn't give you, you know, like we're picking up right off from where the last book ended, you know, the, and it's it's just a refreshing way to know what happened without, you know, having to know too much, if that makes if that makes any sense. It makes sense to me. I, I think it's nice to a nice way to continue it and just having that kind of sense. 
of we're going to go on with the story, but we're going to make it fresh and new in a nice way. So, Olivia, you have only read the first one in the series. Mm -hmm. So you haven't read all the ones in the series. So this is the last, you know, jumps ahead a lot. So how do you how do you think that that works? Do you think that worked well as as a reader? Would you say you could read this without having read the series? What do you think? Yeah, definitely. I think you could read this without any prior knowledge of the series. Uh, but for me, since I read the first book and I was familiar with Cinder and her character, I really enjoyed that first book. I thought her character was really interesting and unusual. I was excited about it when I read it. And here, I think that it comes across really nicely overall. I was pretty happy. I could pick up on who the characters were. It was nice, I think, that they first introduced the, uh, you know, the broadcast from across all the books by sort of their thematic names. And their names are so thematic to boot. So uh, it wasn't too hard and I wasn't overloaded or anything because Cinder is, is like the anchor. She's pretty central still. Yeah, I, I like that perspective because I think sometimes people see a series and they think, oh, I need to have read the whole series in mm-hmm. order to enjoy a piece of it. And one of the things I love about this book is that even if you're not familiar with the series, you could jump in as a graphic novel and it gives you enough background and understanding of who the characters are and where they are at this point in the story that I don't feel like you have to have gone back and read that. So it's good to hear from somebody who hasn't read the whole thing mm-hmm. that – that that's that that's definitely true. Okay, Jess, what was your favorite part of this uh, fabulous I think, book? <laughs> I think my favorite part was seeing the characters, like the reprise, and how they're all still such great friends and how their relationships have grown. Um, one of my favorite parts is how there's, you know, a male protagonist interest for Eco and not someone she necessarily is attracted to right of way, but how their relationship develops. And I'm excited to see where that's going to go in the future. And I'm really, really excited <laughs> yeah. to, for Kai and Cinder to be back together. And, and moving forward. Yeah. yeah moving so forward. this is the first volume in a anticipated yes, series. series. I, I don't know how many it's going to go. We know the second one's hopefully coming forever. out. And hopefully forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. But I, you know, I'm a romantic at heart, too. So mm-hmm. I like the romance. What about you, Olivia? What What's your favorite part? Uh, my favorite part. Not romance, but. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> you can like other parts, too. Gets, the violence. The violence. Yeah. Absolutely. Guns, swords, all of it. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's a fantasy setting, so it's got to have swords, right? Yes, it should. It has, it has to have some kind oh, of movement and action along those lines. <laughs> Something, it's kind of a small thing that I enjoyed, but the fact that Cinder is sort of fashion blind, you know? Uh, that killed me because I relate to that in several <laughs> ways. I'm not necessarily fashion blind because I've been well trained by my family. They're all fashionistas, I'll say. Mm-hmm. They tell me I shop in the old lady section. <laughs> the best That's old something they would tell Cinder, scene. too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah right? I would tell Cinder, yes. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I just I saw myself and my family in her relationships with her friends. I I really enjoy that because I think that's one of the things that makes us connect to a story. If we kind of see ourselves or we see something that's really familiar. Okay, as we wrap up today, ladies, one thing. Why do you think somebody should go out and read this book? What What is that catch, that hook that makes them go and get this graphic novel? Well, you know, other than being from an amazing author, uh, very reputable 
I think that this is a great introduction even to graphic novels and to branching out from just normal text and really exploring what you can gain from those pictures and those expressions that you have to read. And I just really love, I mean, I think readers have really enjoyed the story and this new format and going on this adventure in this new series. Cool. All right, Olivia, why should they run out and get it? Yeah, I agree with Jess. I think it's got a pretty broad appeal going for it. And also, I recommend it because it's a really smooth read. You can just follow along nicely, even if you don't have a background. I mean, if you've ever enjoyed fantasy and science fiction, I think you'll you'll get into this pretty easy. Great way to sum it up. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Rachel Wadham with co-workers at the BYU Library, Jessica Verzello and Olivia Hales, chatting about the graphic novel Wires and Nerve by Marissa Meyer. Now we finish up with author and educator Margaret Blair Young, who talks to Rachel about the impact of literature in her life and the passion she has for sharing it with her posterity and her students. The most important moments of my life seem to have involved literature. My first kind of courtship with my husband uh, 31 years ago was the two of us quoting lines from A Winter's Tale to each other. Both of my parents, my father, who passed away last February, uh, was a linguist. And so his whole goal in life was, how do we figure out how to communicate? And he would always go beyond the general language spoken. In Guatemala, Spanish, of course, is the language. But there are, what, 60 Mayan dialects. Well, he unraveled the dialects. He wrote books about the grammars of several of the dialects. Um, And the whole idea of getting to our essence is what my dad did and what we do as we read how they see the world, even if it's a cat, even if it's an elephant. Authors who have an imaginative ability to connect with another's imagination and to bring a whole world into their view, open that world. Um, I, I remember... I would read stories to my children at night, and I always tried to find something that they would like. I confess that I actually bought my son a doll of Captain Underpants. Good for you. (laughs) Way to go. Every child should be read Captain Underpants, in my opinion. (laughs) And he loved Captain Underpants. And, you know, I, I... receives some condemnation for that. You know, Not for me. Not for me. I, I am all for Captain Underpants. But there were people who said, oh, that's just vulgar. How could you do that? And my thing was, I need to find something that he likes, something that he wants to read. And that's that's what I found. He, uh, This is the son who liked realistic stuff. So we went to Hatchet. And then a beautiful, beautiful book called Touching Spirit Bear. Just a gorgeous book. I don't think my listeners have heard of that book in this context before, but it is a gorgeous, gorgeous book, yeah. Well, I'll I'll maybe get a bit more personal. My son went on a a life detour, shall we say, for a few years. He has since reclaimed his life. But Touching Spirit Bear had a character who was very much like he was. And when he and I read it together, I cried at, at the the epiphanal moment, I shed tears. I could see so much of my son. There was a time when I had him at a cabin as I was just working and praying, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with these new problems that have come into our family? And I had a sudden memory that I had the right to use a cabin that belongs to my grandparents, that as their granddaughter, 
I could sign up to use it. I hadn't for years, but I, I scheduled a time and we went up there and we talked. He fished. Uh, I mostly got mosquito bites, but there was a night when we were sitting on the front porch and I said, let me tell you a story. And it was a story I had written and I just, I told it to him there in the, in the cabin air without a text, just telling the story. And he knew that it was somehow about him and about our family. And it opened the way for us to have a conversation. Author and educator Margaret Blair Young talking about the impact literature has had in her life and her desire to share it with her posterity and her students. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.